0: welcome to the show i'm johnny ball this is speaking influence now the skills of influence and persuasion have always been important in leadership so much so that elites have often tried to keep them secret and out of the hands of those they've sought to maintain power over and keeping them in their own hands and those of their chosen future leaders whether you're an entrepreneur or a public figure the ability to not only be seen and heard but to do so in a way that builds trust in relationships is more vital than ever Tools like rhetoric and understanding the psychology of persuasion are no longer only for political leaders and lawyers. This show's mission is to empower you with the superpowers of ethical influence and persuasion so that your message gets heard, your personal brand gets seen, and you elevate your ability to help others with coaching, speaking, and products and programs. And from time to time, we will take a look at the less ethical side of influence and persuasion so that we can defend ourselves against manipulation and counter negative intent with tools like critical thinking. Here at Speaking Influence, we believe that ethical leadership starts with empowering and educating people and that the tools of influence and persuasion from Aristotle to Robert Cialdini are available to all of us who are filled with a mission to make things better you can know that you're in good company where you belong. This week, we are going to be talking with the amazing Andrea Wilson-Woods about the influence that she made in terms of healthcare around liver cancer after the very tragic story of her younger sister, which she will share with us in this episode. A story that, what's sad, certainly led to some good things afterwards and a mission for Andrea that she took up and has made positive change, undoubtedly helping move things forward in a very positive direction. So following up from our conversation last week with Pam Warren, where we were talking about having an influence in a national scale with government and industry, this week we're talking about having influence in the U.S., Some of that with government, some of that with healthcare and raising awareness and gaining public support. Andrea shows us an amazing story. Now, we did have a few technical issues with the recording, which means it did sadly cut off a little bit early just as we were finishing up the interview. So we'll play it up until then and then it will be very clear for you where the interview ends. But we do keep it at least a reasonably short show for speaking influence and i hope you will enjoy this and get lots of value out of my chat with the amazing andrea wilson woods enjoy the show welcome to speaking influence the show that helps you master the tools of ethical influence and persuasion with persuasive presentations and podcasting host johnny Ball. If you're a coach speaker or course creator and would like to have a simple online ecosystem for your business where you can create funnels build an integrated website sell and host courses and live programs build your list with lead magnets manage your sales create communities and so much more in a way that is affordable and fully supported you will love new Zendler. You can try everything out for free. And if you love it, you can register for monthly or discounted annual billing. It's more cost-effective than nearly every other similar platform out there. Don't pay for a multitude of services you have to then link up manually. Get an online solution that does everything you need in one place. Find the link in the show notes and try new Zendler as the all-in-one solution for your business today. Welcome to Speaking Influence, and today I'm very happy to be joined by someone who is an incredible advocate and loves talking about something that's very dear to her heart. She has an amazing story to tell, and she's going to share some of that with us today. But I think it's very important that we get speaking to people who are out in the world making a difference, having their voices heard with purpose for a real meaning and to make some positive change and impact in the world. And my guest today is someone who is definitely doing that. Please, formally welcome to the show, Andrea Wilson-Woods.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Johnny. I'm glad to be here.
0: It's an absolute delight to have you on the show. Let me ask you, just before we do get started, what is one of the things that most fills your heart with joy in this world?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, that's that's a hard question. I wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> um, I mean, definitely helping people take charge of their healthcare, giving them the necessary necessary tools um, to make better decisions. I I wouldn't say it fills my heart with joy. I just, I feel really, oh boy, Johnny, you stumped me. You may have to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel happy. I feel happy when I can teach people what tools they need to use because most of us are just not natural advocates for ourselves in any capacity, in any way, shape, or form, but especially when it comes to healthcare. And it just really stems from a lack of knowledge and a lack of how to use the knowledge if you even have that. Yeah. That's a rough answer, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I put, I put you on the spot there. But let's, let's talk about this because you are an advocate for a very Meaningful cause, something that's very dear to your own heart, and you have quite a story behind that as well as to why you got into that. So let's start with sharing what that story is and why that took you into becoming a voice, an advocate for that.
1: Sure. When I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from university, and I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrian. I was her only parent, legal guardian. I raised her all through my 20s. And then she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer one month after her 15th birthday. And it was really sudden. Day before she was fine, the next day she felt pain. And that was 20 years ago. And her cancer journey only lasted 147 days. There just was not anything they could do for metastatic liver cancer 20 years ago. Yeah, In fact, I still question if what treatment we did do was even worth it. And and then the following year after she died, I was thirty years old, and what I was doing before just didn't matter to me anymore. I just didn't care, and I needed to find new meaning in life. And I also really needed a way to channel my grief because there were a couple years there when I was suicidal, and so I ended up starting the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, and Blue Fairy's mission to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, which is the most common type, through research, education, and advocacy. So it was not my dream when I was a little girl <laughs> 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 to grow up and start uh, an NGO, but, um, but I did.
0: Yeah, and that's a very powerful Story, and I'm sure we're only really, really sort of getting some of the, even some of the surface level stuff of what really went on there. But you know, time generally works against us on these <laughs> things. But thank you for for telling us that and sharing it with us. It's incredible. So it wasn't quite the direction that you probably saw your life going at that particular time. But that was a lot to happen, and for most people, I think that's very young for all that to be happening as well. So it must have been. Very emotionally traumatic for yourself, too, having to go through this. But, you know, it reminded me when you talk about channeling your grief that uh, I had a guest recently, Pam Warren, who experienced a tr- train crash in the UK years ago and was on TV. She became an advocate for train safety in the UK. She got her voice heard and she made changes in government and industry. And so, although a different kind of advocacy for a different area, it's still very important having that voice out there and being out in the world making a difference and setting up organizations that's a lot of work there's a lot that goes into running an ngo i would imagine
1: <laughs> yeah there's a lot <laughs>
0: <laughs> but did you did you know that's what you were going to do or was it something that started to build up over time
1: i thought about doing it not long after adrian's death i knew i wanted to do something i just didn't know what it was going to look like and and then when i hit that that first year that was really, that was a a really important moment for me, a turning point, if you will, because I had to find a way to channel my grief. And I really thought I would volunteer for another organization. And I contacted the um, largest liver disease organization in the US at that time. And they wanted absolutely nothing to do with liver cancer. It wasn't on their website. They didn't care. I really stressed that I would be a volunteer. I could create a program for them, my background's in writing and marketing, and they had no interest whatsoever. And it really came down to nobody else was doing anything about this very specific type of cancer, which is considered rare in the U.S., but it's actually one of the most common cancers worldwide. And also based on my the knowledge I had gained going through it with my sister, I knew that this cancer would continue to rise. Yeah. And I was right about that. It's one of the few cancers in the U.S. that every year it keeps increasing in terms of incidence. So yeah. I just had to do something.
0: Uh, and great that you did. But is, is that partly because uh, there are some causes that are perhaps just more in the public eye that they want to give more attention to? Or was it really that they just didn't consider it to be as important to prioritize at that time?
1: The one organization I contacted, I found out years later because I have worked with them since, it was an edict within the organization. They did not want to deal with liver cancer. They didn't want to do it. So I can only talk about that as far as it not being on people's radar in, in the U.S. It just, it wasn't 20 years ago, it was not common to get that diagnosis. And my sister was about as far from a typical patient at the time as you could find. I mean, twenty years ago the the typical patient was a non-North American male over the age of fifty. Right. <laughs> so and she was a 15 year old Caucasian girl who had never been outside the u s.
0: Gosh, yeah, it's quite something. so what where did you start to take to a platform about this? What was it like the first time you actually got up to to speak about it?
1: Oh my goodness. I remember, and I don't think I've ever shared this story, we had been around about 10 years already, and we were a very, very small, 100% volunteer organization, and I was invited to attend this liver cancer roundtable two-day conference, and and this was in actually late 2013, 2013, so... It was the first time outside of the people, of my own organization, it was the first time I was in a room full of people that cared about this very particular cancers, about 40 people. There were a couple other patient advocates there from other NGOs that weren't focused on liver cancer, but were focused on related diseases and also all the doctors in the room. And it was a very overwhelming experience it was like Mm. wow these are my people and that really began a shift in terms of getting awareness for Blue Fairy and and getting that platform to speak and so now I really am known in that space as sort of the liver cancer girl (laughs) or woman (laughs) if you will
0: right
1: yeah I mean that was a that was a real turning point
0: but that that's quite something I mean it may seem like okay that may not be the thing that people generally would think oh that's what i want to be known for but for what you're doing and for what you care about that's a great thing that's really good to be known for that because that's what you set out to do with your organization and your speaking work yeah so so tell us a bit more about about that how that journey developed and you started speaking you realized there were some people who you could really connect with and supported that did you start then to develop yourself as a speaker or did you just start getting on on more stages what what elements or evolution did that take for you
1: now I do consider myself a speaker back then it was very organic you know I just got invited to more conferences I met more people my organization had a much broader reach and it, it, it very much happened organically but but now it is something where I do speak on very specific topics and it's not specific necessarily to liver cancer anymore, but it was a really organic process. I didn't think of myself as a speaker first. I always thought of myself as an advocate, as a writer, and really as a storyteller.
0: Yeah. What, what sort of impact then has your, your speaking, your advocacy, and, and your NGO been able to make?
1: Well, I'm really happy to say that when my sister was diagnosed 20 years ago, there were absolutely no drugs for advanced liver cancer. And 2008, it was the very first drug that was approved specifically for liver cancer for advanced disease that was put on the market. And that was kind of the beginning. And that drug had horrible side effects. I mean, it was pretty atrocious and most patients couldn't tolerate it, but it did extend life, if you will, sometimes by a couple of weeks, sometimes by a couple of months. But really in the last five to six years, it has snowballed. And now there are so many drugs for patients with advanced disease. And I should mention that it's not uncommon for people to be diagnosed in much later stages with liver cancer because our livers don't have pain receptors. Right. So by the time you feel pain, it's usually because your liver has gotten so swollen that it's pressing on other organs. Oh, goodness. A- yeah. And so, but if you're feeling pain, usually you're in an advanced stage of disease.
0: I guess that's important to know. So if anyone is, is worried or concerned about that, they should definitely go and get checked out.
1: Yeah. Oh, God, absolutely.
0: But hopeful to know that there are some treatments and, medications that are out there now that perhaps weren't there before it's always that amazing to see so many advancements but wonderful to have been a part of that development and and things for yourself that your voice and your work has been a part of moving things forward you you said that you you became a speaker and and you became more of a storyteller tell us a bit more about that and what do you mean by you became a speaker you trained yourself or (laughs) what
1: what happened there um Well, I've always been a storyteller. I love to tell stories. I always have. And whether it's that's orally or actually writing them down on paper, I love to tell stories. And I think really that's where my heart is and what connects everything I do is being a storyteller. As far as becoming a speaker, yeah, I really had to work at it. I mean, I love talking to people. I feel like I'm a natural when it comes to conversation. I'm very curious about other people. But to be a speaker, get on stage, to really hit certain points, to connect with the audience, um, those are things you you really have to work on and think through. And I still get really nervous if I'm talking for more than 10 minutes. You know, right. I still kind of feel like I have to hold on to my notes. But I actually went to my first conference since COVID a few weeks ago in Phoenix, and I was talking about clinical trials. and while i did have my index cards right there just in case i also just allowed myself to have more fun and tell jokes and i really connected with the audience and now and since that was my first talk in a year and a half i was i was worried you know it had been such a long time it was a very intimate conference yeah and it was it was great it was a lot of fun so i think i think if i just let go and let my personality come forward it's much easier
0: I think that's generally good good advice for speakers, and I want to ask you a bit more about the storytelling, because it's not necessarily something that people would associate with advocacy and with the kind of speaking that perhaps you're doing. As to where does storytelling fit with that, and how have you worked that into your speeches and your talks?
1: I have a great example of why stories make a difference. So We don't do it as much anymore, but for a while we were doing some political advocacy, if you will. We don't have a political arm to our NGO, but we have other organizations we've worked with. They would bring me to Washington. I would be going to, you know, congressmen's offices and senators and et cetera. And I remember the first few times I did this, we really focused on the disease and talked about the statistics. And, And no one had trained me, no one had given me any. You know, like formal training, and you really do need it, especially if you're speaking, you know, to po- politicians. Yeah. And so, and I remember watching like this girl's eyes just glaze over. And that's the other thing. I don't know how it is where you live, but here in the US, you rarely speak to your congressman or senator the first time face to face. You are speaking to a staffer, and they, the average age, I think, is 24 years old. So you have <laughs> to connect with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, I stopped what I was doing, stopped what I was saying. Like, I can still remember the office, the young woman I was speaking with. And I said, let me just tell you a story. And I told my sister's story because at that time, I still lived in the district where my sister had gone to high school. I was still a constituent of this particular congressman. And this girl was young enough to really appreciate what what that was like. And she lit up. And it changed everything. And she took everything to her boss, the congressman. And he did get involved in this very particular committee. And it really moved things forward. And that, from then on out, I was like, okay, you have to tell a story. You, you can say 700,000 people die each year from this disease and nobody cares.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody cares. You have to tell your story.
0: It's uh, it's something that's been shown with a lot of charities. I know Cialdini talks about this in in his book, and I think he's talked about it in some other places as well. Similar kind of thing of like, we can hear all these statistics and how terrible things are, but we don't necessarily connect with them. And, and perhaps we hear so many of them now that we've become a bit numbed and immune to it. And so when charities are reaching out, even if to show how many people are suffering, it's really when they show a, and share one person's story or one animal story, or whatever the yes, charity is for. Exactly. But when they they share one story, and that's what people connect with and that's what people can can relate to more because we can associate ourselves into it more we can care more easily about one person than 7,000 or yeah. a million it, it seems strange and it almost seems wrong but it makes sense in those sorts of what actually triggers empathy with people as well and what really, what really grabs our hearts and, and really starts to change our minds so that's a really great example of how powerful that can be and it's interesting you talk about having some level of political influence there and i'm wondering what you've what you feel that you've learned about influence on that bigger scale that uh, that perhaps has been useful to you and that is useful for other people to understand
1: oh i don't think i have a positive answer to this one
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's okay it, it
1: it became very frustrating for me yeah. it, it became very frustrating to go to dc sometimes like to go and come back on the same day and to see nothing happen and to see how slow the process was. And and it's gotten so much worse here in the last five years in terms of of politics. And yeah, I, I just I will say this for anyone out there who's in the US and wants to do this. If you can make it about the veterans, you've got everybody in because nobody <laughs> wants to say no. <laughs> just well, my headset. Which I important. you know, which I learned pretty early on. If you could but of course, you know, whatever you're asking for, whatever you're looking for may not relate to veterans at all. So, but that's just a little tip. Mm. I became very frustrated by the process and, and I found it to be way too slow and I'm a very impatient person. And so I actually stopped going to DC probably about six, seven months before COVID. I just, right. I stopped. Like I, I needed a real reason to go instead of doing 10 meetings of one day that nothing was going to happen from those meetings.
0: Yeah. So you generally felt that it was far better to put your time and energy into things where you could see movement and get things happening, right?
1: Yes, And a- I think that, that's
0: important for people to know. So if anyone's thinking that they want to do some sort of large-scale advocacy in the US particularly, then you should be aware you're really going to need some patience and some resources and uh, to be able to deal with that it's going to be a lot slower than you imagine it is. And you might just find yourself better off like yourself putting your energy and attention on the things that you can do rather exactly. than the things that might take a long time to change and it's really interesting i mean social change and even policy changes can come from other sources of pressure without necessarily going directly to the person so it may be that that could be a better way particularly the way things are for you right now to apply those pressure into other areas increase awareness and tell the stories and have more people caring about it because the more people who care about it, the more that perhaps politicians feel that they should do something
1: about it. Oh, 100% on that last part. Yeah. The more people you can get. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I still do things, I guess, that are related to the government. I spoke at um, an ODAC meeting for our FDA at the end of April because the FDA was thinking about revoking the use of two very particular drugs for advanced liver cancer. And I spoke at both meetings. One was in the late morning, one was in the end of the day. Um, you know, similar drugs, different manufacturers. And it was really bizarre. It was same committee. And one said, yes, okay, we're going to go ahead and let, you know, liver cancer patients still have access to this drug. And then the other one was, nope, we're not. So, <laughs> yeah, I know both times I did the best I could, but it was, it was a really interesting thing. And normally when you speak to the FDA, you would do that in person but we couldn't because of COVID. So it it was actually even stranger. It was a little bit strange
0: Mm. to
1: do it all by telephone.
0: I I wonder if there have been things on your journey that have encouraged you to keep going that have felt like wins and like, yeah, this is making a difference and this is what it's all about. This is why I got into it. Have you had quite a lot of those sorts of experiences?
1: Many times. It it seems like the moment I get frustrated where I even consider, okay, I'm done. I'm thrown in the towel. Like this is, I'm not making a difference. It always feels like to me, especially in the the early years, that would be the moment I would get a phone call from a patient or an email um, or even a Facebook message. And it could be the patient. It could be their caregiver. Who's often a, a sibling or a spouse or an adult child. And every time that happened, it gave me the momentum and the encouragement I needed to keep moving forward because, you know, I would say, okay, we are making a difference. Like things are happening. Or, you know, it, and I so I feel very fortunate. I feel like maybe my sister's looking out for me or something because I those people always contact me at just the right moment. And yeah. it's it's really rewarding. And that's what I, I personally need. I need to know, okay, are we doing, are we expending all this effort? And is it actually leading to results. I'm a very results oriented person.
0: Mm. What what's the advice if you could go back and meet yourself earlier (laughs) on in this journey? What's the advice you would give yourself?
1: Well, there's this letter or there's this book about writing letters to your 16 year old self. And I actually wrote a blog post about this about writing a letter to my 16 year old self. And it's funny you should ask the question because I love to ask this question too. And I would tell myself that I knew I would get custody of my sister, Adrian. I just didn't know she would be that young. And of course, I had no idea what was going to happen. And so the number one thing I would say to myself is, you know, get Adrian tested. And this is a whole other podcast episode for hepatitis B and C. Those are right. the most common causes or were the most common causes of primary liver cancer. And I was very much involved in my sister's life from the time she was born until age four. And at that point, that's when I moved away to go to college. And there are things that if we had known that could have been done, it's possible she might never have had liver cancer. So on that level, there's the do X, Y, and Z. And I think on the other level, too, I was was a nerd. Like, I was a real nerd in high school. I went to performing arts charter school. I went to this amazing high school. And I just had a hard time sort of finding my way. And that's the other thing I would say to my 16-year-old self, do not worry. You Mm. know, when you become a young adult and you move to Southern California, you are going to just love it. You know, you're going to kind of find your people and enjoy yourself And, and you know, that would have been good to know at 16.
0: <laughs> yeah, or
1: 12, been, even. Yeah, at <laughs> any age,
0: I think. Yeah, that like you could be accepted and enjoy yourself. I and mean, I was a bit of uh, an arts nerd as well, I was into music. I did drama and all those oh, kinds cool. of things Very and, cool. and even as part of my degree I did uh, performance arts as part of my degree as well so we have some things in some things in common that I, <laughs> I, can, I can relate to that but I wonder if if you maybe feel the same as I do that I, I think my own speaking and presenting work and the stuff I get to do on stages virtual and real these days is just a new channel for me being able to in some ways perform that that part of me gets to come out and play and and have some fun on the stage and and talk about sometimes serious things deep things but sometimes light and humorous things and tell those stories and um entertain the heck out of people did you feel the same i
1: i do i feel really fortunate so in high school i was a ballet dancer i was actually a ballet dancer for about 17 years and so i know i present myself well. I stand up straight. You know, I still have the same posture. I still have kind of duck feet. So I have to watch that. But, but I, but I know I have that. And also in college, I actually was a theater major. So I have that background as well and absolutely prepared me. You know, I don't feel awkward in my body when I'm on stage. I, I, it's, you know, I really don't even worry about it. Although the conference I did, and now I don't know if this was from our first time when we had a tech thing or now, but the <laughs> first conference I did since COVID was a couple of weeks ago. And it had been so long that I didn't pay as close attention to my body language as I should have. And I was pointing my foot, my left foot, practically the whole time in my suede red high heel. And it's hilarious. I've got this pointed foot that makes no sense. And it was just like this habit that's still there from from ballet. It was very, I mean, I laughed about it. I had to laugh. I was like, okay, don't do that again. That's <laughs> so.
0: great. Maybe, maybe I should have done ballet instead of piano, I'm thinking, because uh, my my strong fingers are maybe helpful, but they make me very loud on uh, typing on the keyboard, but they don't do a lot for my posture when, I, when I'm standing up doing talks and presentations. So I perhaps, perhaps chose the wrong arts to express myself, but I kind of danced like a buffalo. I, I had the, you know, like that film Fantasia, the Disney thing. Um, Yeah, I I was more like the hippos in tutus, I guess. Uh, But I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I still like to express myself and it doesn't stop me. But yeah, that's that's wonderful. So getting up there, still finding that expression, but in a different form that has very deep purpose to you, a very powerful meaning. And uh, so are the things that drove you initially to start your journey, are they still the same things that drive you now?
1: well, you're asking all these tough questions. Mm. And I listened to a bunch of your previous episodes and I didn't hear these
0: questions. <laughs> Depends on the guests.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess it does. And yeah, I would say they do. I mean, when I started my nonprofit, one of the things we said is we want to put ourselves out of business. And we were serious about that. We didn't want to have a nonprofit just to have a charity. There are yeah. lots of those. We set out to make such a difference and to find a cure for liver cancer that we're no longer needed, you know. We're we're done, and much like polio in the U.S. And so that's that's still there. That still drives me every day. Yeah. You
0: know. So what what's in store in the future for you? What's your vision going into the future?
1: now? Oh gosh. I right now I think that changes, short term anyway. Changes almost every week because of COVID. I right. was supposed to go to a conference. It was going to be a hybrid and. And we were going to be there in person, our first booth in two years in November, and it didn't happen. It got canceled. Mind you, after they told everybody it was happening and we all bought airfare and plane tickets and everything (laughs) else, but I was really upset about that part. But but long term, I want to see a cure for liver cancer in my lifetime. I also have a health tech startup that is for all different types of cancer um, patients and for caregivers as well and I would like to see that take off. I just I really want to know that I did everything that I possibly could to make a difference in the lives of cancer patients and caregivers. I mean, had I been younger when all this happened, I might have gone to med school even though science was my least favorite and worst subject. But I might have right. like you know struggled through med school, but I wasn't. You know, I was 30 the year after my sister died and and so this was the best way for me to use sort of the natural gifts that i have
0: well what you've been doing what you've achieved i'm I'm sure what you'll go on to achieve is absolutely amazing and uh, thank you for coming and sharing that with us and i hope it does give inspiration to anyone else who may be having a really tough time maybe wondering what to do with their grief and whatever traumas have been going on in in their lives and how they could channel it in a positive way it may be some indications of a way forward there Now, I know we are tight on time today, and it's a real shame because I'm really loving talking to you, but (laughs) there's one thing I always like to ask my guests, and that is, well, we'll get to how we'll contact you in a bit, but for a book recommendation, so it could be related to what you've been doing or what we've been talking about, or it could be just a book that's had a really powerful impact on you. What would your recommendation be? See, this
1: question I knew you were going to ask. Um, You did. And I won't. Gosh, I keep hitting that. So sorry. I won't say my own book, but I recommend it. But I'll tell you how to find that. The book that I keep coming back to, and then I've actually made other people read, is Blue Ocean Strategy. It's a really interesting book about business and about how you can go into a marketplace and you need to figure out what is this unique value you bring. And perhaps you open up a different space It's this whole idea that if you go into, if you start a business and you do things the way they've always been done, then all you're doing is competing with other sharks, you know, um, in the red ocean. And, you know, and you could be just, you know, gobbled up or eaten alive or bleed out or whatever. It's sort of that idea. And you see that a lot, really, with the ride sharing services, with, Mm -hmm. with Lyft and Uber. I mean, Uber has Uber Eats now, but, you know, they really are competing head to head. And they're losing money and, and they still raise more money, but, but they're not necessarily profitable businesses. But you have to find a way to get out of that red ocean. Like, Don't yeah. even worry about those competitors. Figure out what it, your business is and then how can you position yourself to you know, provide something different. And that is something that has really helped us pivot with my health tech startup big yeah. time is thinking about a blue ocean strategy.
0: That's a great recommendation. I, I've seen it and I've never really checked it out, but I'm going to now. So uh, thank you, you for have that. To. But you have a book. So, so tell us a little bit about your book.
1: Sure. My book, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, is a medical memoir. And it tells that journey of my sister's 147
0: Sadly, that was where our audio issues cut in and our conversation was slightly cut short. But please do go and check out Andrea's book, Better Off Board, A Life at 147 Days, which tells the story of her sister's journey with liver cancer and Andrea's ongoing journey after that, taking up the challenge of making life better for those who may also end up suffering from the same condition. If you would like to know more about Andrea's non-profit organization and go and support them in their amazing work, please visit the Blue Fairy website. You'll find the link for that in the show notes with everything else from the show. Next time on the show, I'm very excited to be bringing you an episode with no technical issues, but somebody who has made a shift from acting, we're going to talk about influence and persuasion in acting, but also into public speaking, and certainly has made a big splash in the world of podcasting having been a guest on more podcasts than i think i've even recorded myself or have been on myself and uh, is a great example of something that i i include in my upcoming book about how you can build your influence through podcasting as well. So, we're going to get into some of that with Tyler Foley on next week's show. Make sure you're subscribed and tune in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I'm very happy to be able to tell you that we have a new sponsor for Speaking Influence. At Very exciting news for the show and a big step forward for us. However, you can still support the show financially if you would like to through the link in the Supercast page. You can find the link for that in the show notes along with the links from everything mentioned in today's show. And also, if you are someone who is looking to have online courses and programs or you would like a platform that allows you to have not just an online course and program, but everything you need associated with that all in one place, then do check out our affiliate partner, New Zenler. I will look forward to seeing you on next week's show. Have an amazing week. Go and make great things happen.